Welcome to What That Means with Camille, companion episodes to the Cybersecurity Inside podcast. In this series, Camille asks top technical experts to explain, in plain English, commonly used terms in their field, then dives deeper, giving you insights into the hottest topics and arguments they face. Get the definition directly from those who are defining it. Now, here is Camille Moorhart. Hi, and welcome to What That Means, Socio-Technical Systems. Today, we have with us Maria Bezaitis, and she is Fellow and Chief Architect, Socio-Technical Systems at Intel. Welcome to the show, Maria. Thanks for having me, Camille. It's a pleasure to be here. So the first thing I want to do, of course, is figure out what the heck are socio-technical systems. I have to admit, I don't really know what that means, but I do know that we want to get into the intersection of the social and the technical and also look at where that kind of overlays or intersects with security. So can we start with you defining what is a socio-technical system and when did that concept emerge on the planet? Um, So it's a great question. Um, and lots of people ask about this. And, you know, it's not a new phrase. The phrase has been used for years in areas like organizational design and workplace research. I'm uh, bringing it kind of to the fore for tech in part because our lives are no longer strictly social, nor are they exclusively focused around technology. And yet technology companies, I think, are still working towards the importance of that intersection. Right. So if you think about the last, say, 20, 30 years of tech innovation, we've often thought about people as sort of entities that have needs who we need to understand to inform our innovation and development processes. And socio-technical, I think, lets us bring that concept and paradigm forward to really think of the two as much more inextricably linked. Right. So when we're talking and thinking about technical and technical requirements, we really need to understand the social and as inextricably linked. And when we look at our own lives as social entities on the planet, right, it's really hard, at least if you're in um, a lot of the developed world, to really think about them as somehow without technology or outside of technology. So I've heard the concept of user experience, and we're looking at, in that case, maybe the flow of one person who's using a piece of technology and how easy is it for that person to interact with the technology. I think what you're talking about with socio-technical systems is how is that one person interacting with their social circles via the technology? How, How are you separating those two concepts? I see user experience as something that at least in the tech sector has moved much more closely to how people Um, physically interact with things like interfaces and products, right? So it's moved much closer up to the thing being designed or developed, in part because there are lots of requirements that we need to understand at that super close-up interface or level. Um, Socio-technical systems, for me, allows us to pull back on that super micro-focus between a user and a thing and does exactly what you said, which is to say there are layers to this problem. Individuals exist in contexts, which include places and environments and other people. And technologies do as well. And in order to understand how these things evolve, we really need to be looking at the intersection and the co-evolution of people together with technology. How is that? Well, let me look at the two angles. To me, there's kind of the 
online social circles Mm -hmm. that we have. And then there's the social interactions that we have inadvertently with people we don't know. And maybe some of this is in the future more in the IoT world where with self-driving cars, I'm, or, you know, smart parking in the city, I'm now interacting with people I, I maybe never am planning to interact with again. Are you embracing both aspects of that? Or are you totally the future of moving one way versus the other? I think it's both of those things. And I mean, even in the online environments that are really familiar to us or to our kids, if you happen to have teenagers at home, which I do, um, you know, that the people that they're interacting with aren't just people that they know that they've developed incredible fluency and comfort with these environments that involve both people who become familiar, who are familiar to them in the physical world and have a presence online, but people who really entered into their lives uh, from the digital world, from the internet, and who they've come to know in these environments, which are important and, um, and familiar, but who don't necessarily have a reference point for them in the real world. And so, I mean, I think that the IoT space that you're describing is is similar. Uh, there are more people who we don't know who come in and out of our lives at different moments. We interact briefly, and then and then they're gone. And in some respects, you could say that's always been the case, right? Um, imagine yourself in a city in a pre-COVID world where you're walking around and sort of. Uh, briefly encountering strangers, right? And those may or may not lead to actual interactions. But that notion of being proximate to things that we don't know is not new to us. I think what the internet has done and with what tech evolution has done is to really um, kind of diversify and bring more robustness and even depth to those interactions. So that is very interesting to me because you gave a talk a few years ago, a TED talk on strangeness and essentially potentially using technology to help not homogenize the group of people that you're interacting with. And I'm, I'm stumbling, I'm struggling a little bit because what I'm picturing when you describe walking through the city or say walking through Central Park and stopping and listening to a musician Mm -hmm. and then maybe having a conversation with somebody else who's there and maybe even making a friend, that you guys could be from completely different parts of the world, totally different backgrounds, and yet come together over an experience that you just like literally stumble upon. Whereas I would have said in the online world, mostly if we're being safe and secure, we're trying to avoid clicking on kind of things that we would stumble upon. And instead, we're really staying with, you know, who's the source? Who do we know? Are we within this group? And a lot of the things that are being presented to us are already from within sources and groups that we've sort of clicked on, or we know we, we've we got some kind of a connection to. Mm-hmm. So I might have said it was the opposite. So I'm trying to understand how technologies may be helping us reach out more broadly. So you're right. I mean, this is why we love cities, right? Because cities have always been these incredible environments for chance encounters and for very quickly moving us into places and into moments that somehow are not foreseen by the trajectory of our lives up until that point. Uh, There was this moment in tech, and I'll kind of take that back to the sort of period between about 2009 and 2013. So just after the iPhone was introduced, right, um, and apps kind of took over everyone's lives, there was that early moment 
when the sharing economy was just really coming together, where we looked at these tools that were enabling us to take our things and to put them into digital circulation um, and to participate in uh, crowdsourcing activities that felt extremely optimistic, right? So you're talking like Airbnb. I'm talking about Airbnb. I'm talking about Kickstarter. I'm talking even about Uber in the in the very, very right. early days, right? This kind of concept that you could jump into someone's car and share a ride with them and talk with them um, and then get dropped off at your preferred location was kind of miraculous. And I had more than a handful of those encounters myself where I just thought, this is crazy and it's beautiful and it's brilliant. And I think that that was a moment and that moment probably closed for most of us, right? Um, For the most part, meaning what happened was that all of those applications and startups became real businesses Mm -hmm. that had to scale. And, um, And that's led to a whole host of conversations we've had to have about the sharing economy and the gig economy and what that's meant for people who participate in it. But that that early moment of a potential for something new and a potential for encountering something different was absolutely present and important. And actually, I think that in some respects, we're likely to encounter that again as more and more parts of our lives uh, are sourced from what we're doing online. And I guess that's what I see sort of most clearly with people who are much younger than me, right, with my teenagers again watching them invest in online worlds that they are co-developing with their peers and worlds that are creating opportunities for things that they don't have any other source for. So it's different and it's a different model than an Uber, right? Or an Airbnb, Mm -hmm. Um, uh, but it's important. And I think it's something that we're going to need to, it'll be interesting to sort of watch how that develops for them. So I've talked with like Monica Mahay recently And she was kind of talking about how the the digital and the physical are really merged at this point. There isn't an online world and a physical world. And you can, you know, kind of like turn off the online world and come into the physical world and expect that, you know, for example, if there were cyberbullying happening online, it's not as simple as just turning, you know, shutting the lid and walking away and saying, Mm -hmm. well, that's not the real world. I mean, we'd like to think maybe it's that easy, but in reality, studies have shown it's not, you know, it creeps into the physical world. And the other thing is we don't, an online world gives you an opportunity to present yourself a certain way. And I suppose what I'm wondering is, has that collapsed as well? And they're, they're really so entwined at this point that you can't present one way and be something else in the real world or, or are the two worlds merged truly, or is there still this capacity to have, you don't really know who you're talking to in your online community? Um, I think it's a little bit of both, you know, again, maybe it's sort of younger generations, I think are sort of a little bit more adept, maybe at moving more seamlessly between those environments and they understand the constraints and the consequences and, um, and how to, how to use those tools more seamlessly. I find myself making, you know, in the course of my sort of personal life, more, clear decisions about when I want to be online versus offline. And I think that that distinction is what falls apart when we look at younger generations. Mm -hmm. So I'm not sure if I'm, if I, if I'm answering the question directly. 
I'm not sure what I'm asking even makes sense. I think it's just the sense, like you're saying, the younger generation seems to, it's it's a 100% opt-in. There isn't really an option. I think a lot of younger people would look at you funny and sort of say, what do you mean opt out of online? Because yeah. especially since COVID, everything they're doing is online. It's like, yeah. how am I going to connect with a friend then? What what are you saying? How how do I just <laughs> not go online? And I, that was one of the points I think Monica was making is that people who don't have technology, especially in a pandemic world, <laughs> you know, don't have any connection outside of their home to the to the real world. <laughs> it is the connection. So it's really different. Yes. And we still operate, I think, you know, as I, gr- I grew up in the 70s and 80s, and we still operate kind of with this notion that somehow I think our lives are better without tech. There is mm-hmm. a kind of fundamental assumption that it's important to tell your child to park the device, right, and to put it away, that it's important to imagine leisure time or time off from technology. And, I, you know, I don't, I don't think that that's mirrored at all in younger generations. And I'm not sure that's just because they're teens or preteens. Technology is occupying a very different kind of terrain for them. And so that notion of the digital and the physical being inextricably linked is real for them, even when they aren't on a device per se, right? Their world is organized around communities and places and activities that are sourced from a a, a digital world. And and of course, COVID has deepened all of that for them. It is probably, and I know that I'm privileged to be able to have this problem, but it is probably one of the biggest concerns of the parents that I talk to and and Mm -hmm. myself as a parent right now is, you know, how much screen time or, you know, how much device time. And it's kind of like, regardless of what it's being used for, Um, whereas I think kids are looking at it different. It's like, oh, well, but I'm not on my screen. I'm listening to music. Oh, right. That's kind of the same environment. You know, I didn't. Exactly. Exactly. So it's our, it's, you know, we're, we're still managing, I think some of that in some ways. So a lot of that pairs pretty predictably with more and more data and personal information going online. And so how, how are you looking at through the socio-technical systems the privacy aspect of this? I'm, uh, I'm of two slightly unresolved minds on this topic. On the one hand, I think we still see people making all sorts of trade-offs against privacy all the time. What we know for sure is that privacy has never been and will likely never be a kind of concept or a practice that has fixed rules and protocols for people. We're always negotiating our privacy in the same way that we're always negotiating our security, which was which is what makes, I think, humans and communities of humans a really great place to look for thinking differently about both privacy and security. Technologists would like to think that those things lend themselves very easily to rules and guidelines uh, and regulations. And I think I think humans show us that it's not that simple. I think we all thought at the beginning of COVID, or maybe some of us thought that someone telling us to wear masks, for example, would be sufficient for getting everybody to wear masks. And if we saw anything clearly over the last year, it was that that was just not the case. We saw a lot more fluctuation um, and a lot more micro decisions um, being made around what to wear or when to wear a mask and how long to wear the mask and when to take it off. And that's fascinating for me. Because once you kind of move yourself from the mindset that privacy or security is something that can be fixed, 
that can be defined and then implemented. And you move into this kind of space where you can think about those concepts as much more dynamic and much more responsive. Mm-hmm. And then I think you enter into a space where you're really thinking differently about the kinds of technologies that might make sense. So people are making all kinds of decisions when it comes to security and privacy and social. People are interpreting and constantly balancing and making their own choices about all different kinds of things in the social space when it comes to privacy and security. Absolutely. And that's what makes it hard for engineers, right? Because those kinds of behaviors don't lend themselves easily to use cases and to a requirement decomposition. Um, On the other hand, I think that the kind of evolution and growth of AI and the kind of prospect and concept of real-time responsiveness kind of brings us some new tools to think with, right? In terms of how we might imagine technologies that address some of those fluctuations in real time in specific local environments, that gets kind of fascinating. So you're not mapping technologies anymore to behaviors or workloads that are fixed or rigid, uh, but you're able to maybe identify vulnerabilities and holes really in a much more responsive real-time manner, right? And, and then, and then that, that I think creates space for thinking about behaviors uh, that change quickly and in real time. Does that also imply then that people are going to make decisions about whether they're even opting into AI or to participate in the models that are being developed? Totally, mm-hmm. totally. And, and who knows, maybe that's also generational. Maybe kind of that importance of opt-in is something that, um, that goes away at some point. But I, I think right now it's important. In your field, what are people arguing about right now? Is, is there any kind of inflection point in socio-technical systems? I think we're, we're still arguing in some respects about some very old ideas, in part because the social scientists and the designers who work in this space in tech are all working hard to um, essentially convert the mindsets of their engineering colleagues, <laughs> right? Um, and, and that is not a kind of engagement or discussion that happens once, that happens continuously. You know, I've been, I've been doing this for 20 some years now, and I'm always struck about the ways in which we return in some ways to ground, to ground zero or how that kind of work to really change the assumptions of an engineering culture to want to include a very different set of principles from the get-go and to want to really relinquish the terrain in which it does its work. That's really hard work. And are, are you talking about essentially understanding that anything that you design may end up being used differently or, or a different use case applied to that? Yeah, that it gets used differently and that it's, it's not just a set of technical values that define what a thing should be right? That they're not kind of priorities that we can just imagine as a function of what is best for the technology or what drives us to technology values like optimization, speeds and feeds, right? That those values um, have to, that they come from outside and that we have to continue to find ways to introduce them into our assumptions about what a technology, what path it should follow from the very, very beginning. And we talk, we talk that talk. The entire tech sector has become much more adept at having that conversation, right? But I think if you talk to anyone doing this kind of work, whether they call themselves user experience researchers or designers, or whether they call themselves socio-technical systems people, 
they will tell you that that is still kind of where the work is located. What would be the one question you would, if you could magically have every product design engineer ask themselves honestly and openly as they're making a product, what would it be? Who are you making this for and why? Hmm. And where do you imagine it will land? And how do you imagine it's going to get used? And I think creating space for those conversations is hard. Right, right. And then being inclusive about who you're getting that input from. That's right. Yeah. Right. When we talk about, when we talk about users, who are we talking about? How, how is this intersection with ethics in this area? Ethics are critical. Interestingly enough, in spite of the challenges that I think tech continues to have around user experience and with incorporating real insight and understanding about people and humans in the work that it does, we've been reasonably quick to kind of move on the ethics conversation um, not to say that the that the work happening there is done. I think it's just getting started. But it's been striking to me how quickly that conversation has unfolded. And I think it's because the the damage, right, the potential damage and destruction. There are more and more people talking about that um, and 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 making noise about that and trying to hold tech companies accountable. I'd like to see um, ethics kind of move in the same vein that we're trying to move social research, which is that it's not something that ultimately lives outside, right? It doesn't necessarily require extra processes um, and tools and governing boards, but that it becomes much more integral. And I think anyone working in that space today would say that's exactly what we're trying to get done. But just like the kind of general kind of space of uh, social science work in product development and in tech specifically, that's going to that's gonna take some time. So if, um, let's see, you were saying sort of around the 2006, 2009 timeframe, if the sharing economy was kind of the forefront of the way people were pushing technology to use it to a, a social benefit, essentially, mm-hmm. uh, maybe it's an economic benefit, we can argue about the benefits, <laughs> um, what are people doing today and you can pick if this is sort of pre or post or during COVID <laughs> that's similarly pushing technology in interesting social ways that maybe we hadn't expected before. I think all the conversations around um, diversity and sustainability and um, the acknowledgement that there are, is a social agenda that uh, has nothing to do with tech that wants to hold tech accountable for what it does. I mean, that, that feels new and compelling. The fact that we're at a point in time, for example, with diversity, where we are perhaps prepared to not just talk about diversity, but about race in in the private sector. And and that's only happened because there's um, there's a whole set of kind of coalitions and a whole movement that is making that possible. Right. So those are super interesting conversations and they're not being sourced by by tech per se. They're coming to technology from places and from people who have a very clear social agenda. And I think our job as researchers who are working in the tech sector is to make sure that those conversations have a landing zone, right? And to bring them inside our companies and then to sort of work with the right partners inside our companies to change how things get made. 
Yeah, I, I actually just recently had a conversation with um, Rhonda Fox, who heads social equity at Intel. And she was saying, similar to what you're saying, it's inclusion. It's not anymore. It is not just you know, representation. It's not just a seat at the table. It's once you're sitting at the table, you know, are you able to share and express and take in data and have the same experience that other people are? Um, so we've kind of taken a step beyond the numbers and we have to look at, you know, what is, what does it look like when you're in the thick of it and in the middle of it? Are you actually having the same experience as other people? Yes. Uh, but we still have work to do around the numbers. And um, in some respects, we have to kind of get that out of our way. You know, change doesn't happen in any of these companies until you have a much, much stronger kind of presence of diverse technical experts who have a seat at the table, right? You know, the experiences of sort of me being the one woman in the room have to stop, you know, a black colleague being the only black expert, um, technical expert in a room of technologists has to stop. So we have to get, we still have to get past the numbers. I'm, I'm not totally over that. On the other hand, I think we have to start also start to kind of deepen the sense of accountability that a sort of majority population has in, in a tech company and, and work harder to, you know, make not just inclusion possible, but just to sort of benefit from different ideas and from different um, people who are working with us. So you have the highest um, technical position at Intel being a fellow, and your PhD is in literature. Yes. <laughs> so I just want to hear from you what that journey was like, or maybe not the journey, but um, I, I similarly have done technical things in product development and design at Intel, but I also don't come from the technical background. So I'm just curious. It's, it's a bit unusual. You know, how, how is that? How is it? How is, what is it like being a, you know, the How's highest technical achievement at a tech company with a background in literature? Um, you know, I'm not, I'm not sure we're going to see another French literature PhD, um, Intel fellow anytime soon, but that's okay. I'm a lot, I'm a lot more comfortable thinking and talking about it now than I used to be. I think for a long time, I didn't mention it. I didn't want to mention it. I didn't even want to think about it because, <laughs> you know, trying to figure out how reading, you know, 17th, 18th, 19th, 20th century texts and French philosophy, um, in concert with developing research tools for the private sector and product development, those things just didn't necessarily feel like they went together. Um, but I was really lucky because I started my career at a very small company where I was surrounded by a few people like me. And so the theoretical connection points were made quickly. And I found that even people who were coming at product development from design and from departments like human development and certainly the social sciences, we had the same kind of theoretical underpinnings, right? We knew how to talk about identity. We knew how to talk about narrative. We knew how to talk about culture and how to think about those things. And that became the kind of raw material for developing new kinds of research methodologies, design methodologies that the, the you know, in the mid nineties, when I started doing this work in the private sector, um, were really, really compelling um, because they gave the marketing sciences in particular and product development teams totally new material to work with. So I've gotten better about thinking about those connections. And I tell people now that I'm actually doing, in some respects, exactly what I was doing in graduate school. I'm just doing it with different kinds of texts. So it's no longer <laughs> French fiction. 
right? It's just, it's a different kind of, it's a different kind of text, but the value that I provide and the ways that I approach the sort of problem, I think remain pretty similar. Very, very interesting. Maria, thank you so much for coming on this episode. I really enjoyed the conversation. It's been a pleasure. And I'm happy now that I feel like I understand a little bit more about socio-technical systems. Thanks for joining us. Thank you, Camille. Have a great day. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cybersecurity Inside. Follow at Tom M. Garrison and Camille at Morehart on Twitter to continue the conversation. The views and opinions expressed are those of the guests and author and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of Intel Corporation.